We're in our third look at volume four of Genesis, seeing God's sovereign plan for his people, notably through the life of Joseph. Joseph, if you remember, was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Jacob, who is also named Israel. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Abraham is the guy that God called to to set apart a new people for himself. So Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. He has one biological brother named Benjamin, and then he has 10 half-brothers. They have, a different, they have different mothers than, uh, than Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin are from Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, which is its own issue. That's not okay, but that's not the point of the conversation today. Uh, Joseph's brothers hated him for being the favorite. And I think Benjamin might be the only exception because Benjamin was younger, it didn't really matter. But, uh, but the other 10 brothers, they hated Joseph for being dad's favorite. And it got worse when Joseph told his brothers that he had a dream that someday they would all bow down to him. So they threw him into a pit to die, but instead, they, uh, instead of having him die, they ended up selling him as a slave to Egypt. He was 17 years old when that happened. He worked hard as a slave and was entrusted with the highest position. And then at the highest position as a slave, he was falsely accused of trying to take his master's wife. And so he was thrown into prison. So he went from slave to prisoner. And as a prisoner, he worked hard in the prison and he was entrusted to the highest position in the prison whatever that might mean. I don't know how many jobs there are in, uh, in the Pharaoh's prison. But eventually in prison, he meets two former servants of Pharaoh who were also in prison, namely the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And both of those men uh, were troubled because each one had a dream. There was a There were two dreams, one to each of them. They both had dreams uh, that they didn't understand, which was a big deal in Egypt back in that time. If if they had a dream, they thought that, uh, that the gods were speaking to them, giving them a message, and they didn't understand it. And so that could mean trouble. What if the gods were telling them to do something or warning them about something, et cetera? And so they were troubled that they had these dreams and they didn't understand it. So they, uh, they tell it to Joseph and Joseph hears them and then he speaks the meaning back to them. He says the cupbearer would be restored to cupbearing and the baker would be beheaded and this would happen in three days. Three days later, everything happens just as Joseph said it would. And so it is, uh, it is proven that Joseph has this incredible gift to understand and discern the meaning of dreams. That gift comes from God. God alone knows the meaning because God is the one who is sending those messages. uh, And God has revealed it to Joseph. That's what the story has given us so far. Now, it's been 11 years since Joseph was sold by his brothers. So he spent some time as a slave, then some time as a prisoner. That total time was 11 years. He is now 28 years old and he is still in prison. The cupbearer is still cupbearing. The baker has been beheaded and Joseph has been forgotten. The cupbearer, even though he was restored to his position, he didn't remember to talk about Joseph and say, hey, this is the reason why I got out of here. You know, this is a guy who can uh, tell the meaning of dreams. So Joseph went from being the favorite in a rich family to becoming a slave, to becoming a prisoner who does great things 
and excels in everything he does and yet still is forgotten time and time and time again. This was Joseph at his lowest. But then for us, as the readers, we're not really concerned, are we? Because if you've already read the story and if you already know the ending and stuff, then there's no suspense for you because you know how things are going to turn out, so you're not wondering. But even if you don't know the end of the story, even if this is new to you, by now in Genesis, you know that God has proven himself to be a God who keeps his promises. And he's going to keep his promise to Abraham. He's going to make Abraham's descendants into a nation. And especially this early in the process, God is actively intervening to protect and provide for those descendants of Abraham to ensure their survival and to make an object lesson out of them to show that by their prosperity and by the way that he brings about their greatness, he will also do that spiritually for his people for eternity. There's something to be understood by what he's doing physically in history to know what he will do spiritually for eternity. Despite the unfaithfulness of the people that he has chosen, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, despite their unfaithfulness, despite their unworthiness, God is proving himself faithful to the end. The people that he's chosen keep showing us unfaithfulness at various times in various ways, and yet God is still faithful on his end. However, when we get to the story of Joseph, we finally see a different story. Here's a man who suffers injustice, who endures incredible tragedy. And unlike his father or his father or his father, he suffers for doing what's right. He's not suffering because of some mistake he made. He did something wrong and so it comes back to bite him in the butt. It's not that. He suffers for doing what's right. And the question is, well, how is that okay? But we know that God is going to prove himself faithful. So we saw Joseph at his lowest last week, and we come to the turn in the story today where God steps in and puts Joseph at his highest. We're going to take it in three sections, if you're taking notes. The first section is Joseph and Pharaoh. That'll be chapter 41, verses 1 through 36. Second will be Joseph and Egypt. That'll be chapter 41, verses Uh, 37 to the end of the chapter. I think that's verse 57. Is that right? That's right. And then uh, the third will be uh, Joseph and the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob. That's his brothers, right? That'll be all of chapter 42, which is verses 1 through 38. All right, let's start with Joseph and Pharaoh. In Genesis 41, verse 1, it says, after two whole years, after he... uh, interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. 
So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Stop there for a sec. It's been two years since the cupbearer was restored, and since the baker was beheaded, Joseph now is 30 years old. He has been away from his family for 13 years, and Pharaoh has had two very simple dreams, right? First one's easy. It's just seven fat cows and then seven skinny cows. The seven skinny cows eat up the seven fat cows, and he gets the same dream again with grain. Seven fat grain and seven thin grain, and the thin grain eats up the fat grain. That's basically the same thing. And just like the cupbearer and the baker who had dreams, a pair of dreams that came in the story, Pharaoh had a pair of dreams, and he was troubled because he didn't know what it meant. And that's weird. That's really weird because Pharaoh in Egypt is considered to be divine. So for him to not understand a message from the gods would be extremely embarrassing and troubling. So he's very bothered, he's filled with anxiety, and he needs an interpreter. So he calls all the magicians, he calls all the wise men, and they don't have any idea what it means. And maybe you'd read this and you'd think, oh, this is obvious because, uh, you know, like maybe you've read the story, and so with the advantage of hindsight, you look at this and go, obviously this means seven good and seven bad, and seven bad will overtake the seven good, something like that. But for the Egyptians, famine or, you know, which is what it, it seems to point to, uh, these thin cows the, and the, the blighted grain, that would, that would mean famine, but that means that the gods are displeased. They're angry. But when you have, like, plump cows and, and fat grain, that's, that's abundance. And that means that the gods are pleased. Now, neither of these dreams actually say that the gods feel anything. And it's very odd that there would be a mixed message. Why would there be good and then bad? Like, are, are the gods mad at me or are they happy with me? That's what, what would be going on in Pharaoh's mind. He has no idea what his dream means. It freaks him out. He's supposed to know, but he doesn't. And so what's he going to do? He can't understand his dream. And then we as the reader already know the answer. We'll bring in Joseph, right? He's a guy who has dreams and he can inter interpret dreams. And that's what will happen. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with the servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged, which includes a beheading and then his body being hanged. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes to be presentable... When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream. I've, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now that's important. Joseph doesn't take credit. He gives it to God. He, he very explicitly, directly, blatantly says, uh, I'm not the one with the actual gift. God is the one that knows. He just kind of lets me in on it. This shows his character and it gives us the author's theme, right? It shows us that, that Joseph is not gonna sit there and try to angle for himself. He's like, look, only God knows. It's, it's, it's not even me. So you can't, you can't give me credit for stuff like that. So that shows good character, right? But it also shows the author's theme that as much as Joseph operates on his human side, God operates on the God side. That through the workings of man and the decisions and the free agency of man, still the sovereignty of God is moving that there is something that happens on our side and there's something that happens on God's side and somehow, no matter what we do, while we have full range to choose whatever actions we want, still the sovereign will of God comes about. God cannot be thwarted or foiled. He can't be outsmarted or outdone. Joseph also doesn't specify which God, by the way, is uh, giving him the meaning of the dreams because Pharaoh believes in all the Egyptian gods, right? There are a lot of Egyptian gods. He believes in all of them. And he, uh, Joseph doesn't say which God, at least it's not written down uh, to tell us um, that Joseph ever specified. So it doesn't seem like he ever specifies. He just says God knows the meaning. And it, in a way, it almost doesn't matter whether or not uh, Pharaoh believes in, in Joseph's God, Yahweh God. Whichever God Joseph serves and whichever God he's talking about has to be a God that is different from the Egyptian gods, that is more powerful than the Egyptian gods because Joseph is speaking in the singular. Elohim, which means gods, but he says, Elohim, he will, singular, he will give Pharaoh uh, the answer to your riddle. You're looking for an answer to what your dreams mean. He'll give you a favorable answer, meaning he'll give you the answer that you're looking for, even if it's not a pleasant answer, that's what you want to know, he'll give you what you want to know. Now, Egypt doesn't depend on rainfall for its harvest. It depends on the flooding of the Nile, which is a lot more consistent. Uh, and so, so extended time of drought is extremely rare in Egypt. So any god that brings about famine would have to restrain the Egyptian gods from their rulership over the Nile. Any god that, that comes in and, and brings famine for an extended amount of time is going to be more powerful than the Egyptian gods. And so Pharaoh must suspect whatever god Joseph serves, that god is outside the Egyptian pantheon. It's the God of Joseph. Verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven, plump, seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. 
Seven ears of grain, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, if you remember in chapter 37, Joseph had two dreams in prison. Two guys had dreams, and so there were two dreams told to Joseph there. And now Pharaoh has two dreams, and even with Pharaoh having two dreams, we hear it told twice. First in the original narration, and then second in Pharaoh explaining it to, to Joseph. Pharaoh's dream has two sides to it. The, the, the doubling of dreams me, means that the thing is fixed by God. It's not going to change. It, it is set. The sovereign hand of God cannot be moved by anyone else or anything else. So there's an interesting symmetry we see unfolding again in the human events and the sovereign hand of God working unseen. Even in the, uh, the fact that Pharaoh tells it almost exactly the same way. When he tells Joseph his dream, he tells it almost exactly the same way that we heard it in the first paragraph. Still, there's this pair, but when Pharaoh retells it, he adds an emphasis on how ugly those skinny cows are. They were ugly cows. Ugly, by the way, is a translation that actually is the word ra, which means bad or evil. So there were seven good cows, and there were seven uh, good cows as in like, you know, uh, tov would be the, the root of that. And then there's seven evil cows, ra, tov and ra. So you have good and evil once again contrasted. It's a, a return back to language that comes directly out of Genesis 3 with the, this tree of knowledge of tov and ra. The themes start to... to connect back together. That contrast given to us first in Eden is talking about the ability to discern good and evil. That there was a fruit that if you eat of it, then you start to discern good and evil. But mankind, Adam and Eve, were not ready for that at the time. They were, they were restricted, forbidden from eating that fruit, and yet they took of it. And since that day, mankind has been deciding for himself what is good and evil instead of what God has determined to be good and evil. Society and culture has started determining what is good and evil instead of what God has determined is good and evil. That is the root of sin. That's, that's really where sin comes from. We go, I want that. That looks good to me. So I'm going to go after that. I don't care if someone says otherwise. I'm going to go after that because to me that is good. 
And anyone who stands in my way is bad or evil. Every time we're seeing it in Genesis, the evil of man is exercised. And yet still, God, despite the evil of man, God still accomplishes his good. That doesn't mean evil isn't evil or bad isn't bad. It means that bad things and evil things simply don't stop God from accomplishing good. Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. There will be seven years of abundance, seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. And again, the the meaning seems obvious to us now, but uh, it didn't line up with the Egyptian dream book, so it confused the Egyptian magicians. But Joseph doesn't just give Pharaoh the meaning of the dream, he also gives advice. He doesn't just say, this is what your dreams mean, he also gives advice like, this is what you should do, verse 33. Joseph says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now that's a good plan, right? Find someone discerning and wise to manage the resources, to save up during plenty, to survive during famine. That's just smart. That's a good idea. That's what everyone should do, even just in regular life, right? When you have a lot of money, don't blow it on something that you're going to, in a time of need, you're going to go, why did I spend it on that? Wouldn't you know it though, Joseph, he says, uh, find a a wise and discerning guy to govern the land. And he he doesn't suggest anyone, he just says, find someone who's like that. And Pharaoh has a moment to sit there and think about it. And he knows because he's been briefed on this guy, Joseph, he knows that Joseph, as a slave in the house of the captain of the guard, did extremely well managing and governing. And then when he went into prison, he did extremely well managing and governing in the prison. And so the Pharaoh already has this idea, like, well, who not only has the ability to interpret dreams and you know, is then blessed by, uh, by the heavens, but who also has gifting to manage and govern. It's an obvious choice. And so again, we're going to see the, the hand of God bringing about something incredible. Now, technically, if you go back to Joseph's days with his brothers, he was given this, this uh, colorful coat, right? His amazing technicolor dream coat. When he had that, that means that he wasn't labor out in the field. He was already management, right? He was... He was the, the, the guy on the desk. He would go and, and look for his brothers and see where they were at when they were doing the shepherding because he was management. He would oversee them. So he's had years of training of management with his brothers, uh, years of management in, uh, in slavery, years of management in prison. He was the obvious choice. And so we see the tandem operation of Joseph's hard work and, and good work ethic coupled with God's sovereign plan that God uses Joseph's 
good work to bring about his goodwill. The author intentionally shows the contrast between the magicians of Egypt, by the way, the magicians of Egypt and, uh, and all the wise men, because they're part of a, uh, uh, of a false religion. And all their work comes to naught. They can't figure out what, uh, what the dream means. And so the, all the wise men and the magicians of Egypt are, are then contrasted with what verse 12 calls a young Hebrew man, like a nobody, this, this kid that comes from the line of Eber, a, a young Hebrew man. Joseph is one guy that, that uh, the only real discernment of good and evil comes from because Joseph knows that the, the discernment of good and evil, of tov and ra, comes from God, not from himself, not from society, not from culture, not from Pharaoh, not from magicians, not from wise men, not from psychologists, not from sociologists, not from anyone else. He knows exactly where the, the discernment of good and evil comes from. It is from God. That is where the truth of good and evil, where, where Tov and Ra lies. Joseph in Egypt then, verse 37. We're going to read the whole thing all the way to the end of the chapter. This is what it says. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Or he might have said the spirit of the gods. He might have been speaking more Egyptian uh, religion. But in any case, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I ha I've set you over the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Potiphar should not be confused, by the way, with Potiphar. Different people, different names. Uh, he gave an, uh, him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 
The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph has said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now let's think about this. Why does Pharaoh believe Joseph when Joseph gives the interpretation of the dreams? Because Joseph can't actually prove that what he said is gonna happen is gonna happen. He can't prove it, right? But his message is so peculiar because uh, he's not trying to threaten Pharaoh by saying, oh, there's gonna be famine, and if you don't do what I say, you're." You're going you're gonna to suffer. He doesn't do that. And he's not trying to flatter Pharaoh by saying, there's going to be years of plenty. You're so awesome. Now can I have a job? So he's not trying to, to flatter him. He's not trying to threaten him. And so Pharaoh can tell that he's simply telling him what the dream means, what the dreams mean. There's no ulterior motive. He recognizes Joseph's uh, wisdom in his plan, right, to get a team of administrators to exact a 20% tax to store in escrow for later. Government will tax the food, and then in the, during the famine, will sell it back to the people who gave it. And when the people have no money left, the government can buy their land. That's good for Egypt from the government standpoint, for the survival of the people, for the rise of Egypt over the other nations, because all the other nations are going to come to Egypt now for food. And that also shows that God is bringing about a very interesting promise that he made to Abraham that you, in you, and your descendants, you will bless the whole world. And very directly, Joseph is accomplishing one of those ends, that the whole world is starving, that the whole known world in this area, and the nations come to Egypt and Joseph gives them food. Well, the plan is genius. Jo Joseph can interpret dreams. He shows remarkable wisdom. Pharaoh sees that the spirit of God is with them. Pharaoh knew that Joseph is divinely blessed, just like Potiphar saw that, the prison warden saw that, the cupbearer saw that, the baker saw that. Everybody knew that God was with Joseph. They watched how he suffered. They watched his good work. And then they could see God. Because that's what happens when you do good work amidst your suffering. People then understand God. Could anything have gone better for Joseph? Pharaoh recognizes God is with Joseph. Pharaoh uh, recognizes that Joseph is discerning and wise. Joseph gets promoted to the highest position in the empire, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph gets a brand new garment of fine linen and a gold chain, and these kind of replace his, his colorful coat. It was Egyptian royalty that he was dressed in. Joseph gets to ride in the second chariot, and everyone bows to him as he approaches, because someone's announcing before Joseph arrives, they say, bow the knee. Joseph has authority over everyone. His slavery was over. He was now royalty with the king. 
That's a huge jump. He went from prison to paradise. From prison to a palace. Joseph is given a wife, and with his wife, during the years of plenty, they have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He was proven right about everything he said. He's fully vindicated and glorified. Joseph is fully vindicated, fully glorified, from prison to paradise. That is the jump he made from his lowest to his highest. Now, thematically, this is something of a return to Adam, like Adam and Eve, Adam. Adam depended on God for discernment of good and evil in the beginning. So does Joseph. Adam was made vice regent, second in command, highest rank, second only to God over all of God's land, all of creation. So was Joseph over all of Egypt, all of Pharaoh's land. Adam was made in God's image to carry his authority. Joseph was dressed as Egyptian royalty like Pharaoh to carry his authority. God provided Adam with a wife. Pharaoh provided Joseph with a wife. Adam was put in charge of all the land. Joseph was put in charge of all of Egypt. Adam was created without sin. And Joseph, as far as the author depicts him, and unlike any of his other family members, commits no sin in the, uh, in the events of the story. So he's portrayed to us as sinless, even though he is a regular human being with a sinful nature. None of those, event, none of those sinful actions or sinful intentions are ever recorded. So he's depicted to us blameless. Adam was supposed to do everything right and messed up. Joseph is actually doing everything right, despite severe disadvantages and tragedies and injustices. Joseph is an implied picture of what should have been if Adam trusted God to discern good and evil. If Adam trusted and just stayed obedient. And as we're coming to the end of Genesis, we, we're seeing God steer the events of history to resonate with how he began creation. And the author is using language to start connecting it back to the roots. I don't know about you, but when I, when I would read Genesis, I would always think that there's a story of Adam and Eve over here, the story of Noah over here, story of Tower of Babel over here, story of Abraham over here, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And I just thought that they're completely different books that just happen to be slapped together. That is not the case. The theme runs through. It's the sovereign hand of God bringing about a people for himself. And it's a people that, that have faith in him, trust him, to discern good and evil, to say this is what's good, this is what's tov, and this is what's evil, this is what's ra. That's faith. And to stay trusting in that, stay faithful in that, and to stay obedient in that, despite the pressures and the tragedies and the injustices, despite the hardship of life and the pressure from the world around, to stay faithful. God is setting apart a new people, a new beginning, with all sorts of hints that despite human action, God indeed is behind 
it all. He has a sovereign plan that is coming about while men do what men do, while women do what women do, while people do what people do. God is still accomplishing his will. Finally, let's look at Joseph and the sons of Israel, chapter 42. Verse 1, it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, now Jacob is Joseph's dad, remember? When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Meaning, why are you just sitting around staring at each other, right? Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die, that we may live and not die. So uh, verse three, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's full biological brother. uh, Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his half-brothers, for Jacob feared that harm might happen to Benjamin. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Stop there for a sec. Jacob's words, he he talks to his his sons, and uh, he, he, he says, hey, why are you guys just sitting around there staring at each other? Do something, right? There's a famine in the land. We are starving. Just not just the, uh, you know, the, the sons and, and dad and, uh, and the moms, but the household, the servants, there are lots of people that belong to them, hundreds of people. So he's like, we're starving. You guys are just sitting around staring at each other. Why don't you go buy some food? I heard that there's food in Egypt. Go down there and buy it. And he says, you know, like, go down there, buy food that we may live and not die. Well, yes, because that's what live means. You may live and not die. We may live and not die. Why? That's a weird, obvious way to speak. That we may live and not die. That we may eat and not starve. But this is again a throwback to the beginning of Genesis because God creates everything and he breathes in it the breath of life. And he says, don't take of this tree. Don't don't disobey me. Don't fall away from trusting and obeying me or else you will surely what? Die. Right? I give you the breath of life. And when you stop depending on me for life, you will surely die. And Jacob invokes the same vocabulary. He says that we may live and not die. Well, Joseph's brothers show up, and the last time they saw him was age 17, and so they don't recognize him. And I think that that is totally believable. I used to think that, come on, that's your brother. How do you not recognize him? But first, he doesn't look like himself anymore. He's fully shaved and everything, you know, to be in the service of Pharaoh. He's going to be completely bald everywhere except maybe one of those Egyptian goatees. I I don't say that because I have a goatee. I'm not saying because Egyptian. You've seen the pictures, whatever. Okay. Anyway, he might have a goatee. But otherwise, he's, he's completely bald. 
Not only that, but he's going to have all the Egyptian makeup on, the crazy eye makeup. You know, it's, just, it's eyeliner that goes like down to your cheekbones and everything, right? It's, it's everything. And he's going to have the headdress and all that stuff. He's going to look like Pharaoh. So when someone dresses up like that, it's hard to recognize them. Not only that, but the last time they saw him, he was 17. And now he's 30 or 30-something 30 by the time they show up. I got to tell you, the difference between 17-year-old me and 30-year-old me is, to be honest, 90 pounds. Because over the years, I have gained a lot of wisdom. So I don't know what Joseph looks like now. He's been eating like royalty. So they don't, under, they don't recognize him, but he, he, he sees them. I mean, when they sent him off, they were like 40-something years old. You just stay looking the same way at that point. So he knows who they are. They come into the room and they bow to the ground, faces to the ground. You ever bowed to someone like that? A bunch of you are Asian, so I'm not talking about New Year's. Have you ever bowed to someone like that? Try it. It, There's like something humiliating about it. You only do that when, when you absolutely recognize someone's power. They bow to Joseph with their heads to the ground because he's governor of all the land of Egypt and it is just as Joseph had dreamed. Chapter 37. We know then that Joseph's dreams came true. And again, that vindicates and glorifies Joseph to us, the reader. But you know what we don't know? We don't know if Joseph's brothers have repented, have they grown? Have they changed? Have they matured? We don't know. And neither does Joseph, right? They come in, they bow to the ground, but he doesn't know if they're any different. Are they the same? Are they the same horrible people that they were? He sees 10 of his brothers, right? He's number 11, Benjamin, who's still back at home, is number 12, the 12 sons of, uh, of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob. He sees his 10 brothers here, and he has to be wondering, okay, are these guys for real? Are, like, are they the same or are they different, right? Do, how, should I, how should I interact with them? So he could reveal himself, but he wants to know what's going on. Verse 9, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, he said, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land, right? You've come to see our vulnerabilities. You've come to see where where we're weak. Verse 10, they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Which is true. They've never been spies, but they have been liars. They They have been schemers. And Joseph himself is kind of doing the scheme here too. This family is just hard to trust sometimes, right? Verse 12, Joseph said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, that's Benjamin, and one is no more. That's Joseph. They think he's He's dead. They think he's, he's gone and, you know, slave, whatever, gone. Verse 14. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Right? He, he's not listening to them. 
By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, you surely are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Okay. Three days he leaves them in custody. Joseph is milking this, right? He is a schemer, yes, just like he's learned from his brothers and from dad and from grandpas, you know, like he's, he's learned from, from his family to just be like this. But his test is not a malicious one, as we'll continue to see. He's demanding to see his full brother, his biological brother, Benjamin, who obviously now is, must be the favored son. I mean, you know, dad is like, all of you go, but, uh, but not this one. So who's the favorite, right? Because um, Jacob had his favorite wife, Rachel, which again, that's its own problem and dilemma, but, but that is what happened in the story. He has his favorite wife, Rachel, and then she has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. So Joseph was his favorite, but then Joseph, he, you know, he thinks Joseph died. That's what the brothers told him when they sold Joseph to slavery. They're like, oh, dad, you're your son's dead. So now, Benjamin is his favorite. Joseph and Benjamin are, are full brothers. They're the two sons of Jacob's favorite wife. And, uh, and so when Joseph says, bring me Benjamin, it's going to give him a look. How will they treat the favored son? Will it be any different than how they treated me? when I was the favored son. Do you see that? How will they treat my brother Benjamin, who's the favorite? Because I know how they treated me when I was the favorite. But the brothers came here to, to get food for the household, right? They, they came here because there's a famine and the, the, the family's starving and stuff. Keeping them here, if you keep them in custody, it, the, their families will starve. All of their kids will starve. All of their servants will starve. Dad will starve. All of that, right? So Joseph is not trying to exact revenge. If you notice, uh, he can at any point reveal himself and be like, all of you suck, and so d d just die. And he could just, he could put him to death, or he could be like, ha starve. Nobody give him any food. And then that would be it. So he could absolutely take revenge if he wants to, but he doesn't. He knows that he still has to take care of his family, and that would be what God wants for him. God discerns good and evil. And so he, he's like, okay, you guys can go back, but just leave one of you here. One brother stays here. So at first he's like, only one brother go back. But then he changes his mind after three days. He's like, okay, all of you go back except one brother stay here. And that's one brother, one of you, one brother keeps sounding like their, their little remark in verse 13. One brother is no more. One is no more. So one of you, one of you. Okay. Well then one of you will stay. 
there's this, uh, this kind of rhyming that, that starts happening. Even if these guys didn't change or grow or mature, even if the brothers were still the scummy brothers that they were, Joseph still sends nine of them home with food. He's going to take care of them. He's going to feed them. He's going to meet their needs. Because doing good is not dependent on what, whether or not someone else deserves it. Doing good is simply carrying out the will of God. He's not out for blood. He wants answers. He wants to see what has become of his brothers. Have his brothers changed? There's that symmetry here. Now, if you, I want to recall way back in chapter 37, verse 18, uh, there was a moment where young Joseph, 17 years old, went to go look for his brothers. And it says in, in uh, chapter 37, verse 18, they saw him, and the verb there, ra'ah, they saw him from afar. They conspired, nachal. They conspired against him to kill Muth, to kill him. And that comes back, that same language comes back, that the peculiar wording there comes back in chapter 47 here that we're looking at. In verse 7, it says, Joseph saw Ra'ah, he saw his brothers and recognized Nahar, which is a, a related word to Nahal. He recognized them. And then in verse 20, he said to them, you shall not die. Muth. Kill and die were the same, same root. So Joseph is portrayed by the author using the same vocabulary with something of a narrative rhyme, except he does not repeat his brother's sin. They see, they conspire to kill. He sees, he recognizes, and he says, you shall not be killed. You shall not die. It distinguishes for us as the reader that he is different from them. And his words even echo his father's words. In verse 18, he said, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. In verse 20, he says, and you shall not die. Yes, because that's what live means. Do this and you will live. And you shall not die. That contrast is brought up again. Verse 21 of chapter 42. Then they said to one another. So they're talking amongst themselves. Okay. And they speak a different language than the Egyptians, by the way. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw, his, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now, I, I like that they're squabbling amongst themselves privately because it, 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 it gives us an insight into what's going on with them internally, right? They bear guilt for what they did in the past. It shows in their words. They're like, this is because we messed up. They believe their distress right now is God's justice. God is paying them back for their evil, which they will pretty much say blatantly in verse 28 in just a sec, right? They knew what they did was sin. Reuben, representing them, he kind of calls them out on it. He's like, why did you guys sin against him like that? And corporately, they're all involved in it, right? He's like, I warned you, and why did you do that? And their integrity 
is displayed for us way back in verse 13 when they're like, look, 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 look. We all came from one guy. We have one dad. All of us are brothers from one dad. And we even have another brother who's back home and we have another brother who's no more. And so just, they didn't have to volunteer that information, but they did. They didn't hide that. When you, when you come around with your integrity, you end up being less concerned with hiding your sin and, and more adept at confessing it. And this shows a growth of character that's taken place. Verse 23. They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. So Joseph is just hamming it up, right? He's, he's got this interpreter because he's speaking Egyptian. Interpreter then speaks it to, to these Hebrews. They speak back and then, you know, interpreter, right? Verse 24. Then Joseph turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Now, I think it's hilarious that he turns away and he weeps, then he comes back, like, what's happening with that Egyptian eye makeup? You know, does he come back, he's just running down, and they're like, are you okay? He's like, I'm fine, why? You know, he's just, I don't, what does he look like? Or does he reapply it, like before he, <sighs> blotting paper, what does he do? I don't know, but he weeps and he comes back. They don't ask. But he's like, all right, one of you shall stay. That guy. And he points at Simeon. He, he specifically points out Simeon. He's like, bind that guy. So he binds Simeon. And why does he pick Simeon? Why, out of all the brothers, does he pick Simeon? The, the text doesn't tell us. So there's no way to know. But I have a guess. I have two guesses. And so this is my personal guess. I'm stepping aside so you know that this is not the authority of Scripture. My personal guess going to waste your time hearing my personal thoughts. All right, guess number one. If you remember Simeon and Levi back in chapter 34, they're the guys that went and murdered all the Shechemite men, right? They genocided the camp of the Shechemites. That's Simeon and Levi. Now, Simeon is the second born of the sons. So Reuben, he seems like he's just kind of interested in the ladies because that's where he messes up. And then here's Simeon and Levi. And it seems like Le uh, Simeon is the guy who might be spearheading this, right? The, oldest, uh, the second oldest brother is like, let's just kill all the Shechemites. So it seems like maybe there's a violent streak in him because he doesn't mind first pranking them to all get circumcised and then waiting until they're all in pain for a few days. And then he goes and then he murders all of them. That takes a certain kind of character. Not all of the men here are capable of that. Right? So Simeon just seems like he's like a special kind of scumbag. Right? He's just set apart in a, in a, in a bloodthirsty manner. Maybe. So it could be that when, when they were like, uh, when they attacked Joseph and threw him in a pit in ch chapter 37, it might have been Simeon that's like, let's just kill the guy. Let's kill him. Yeah, let's kill him. Let's kill him. Kill him. Kill him. Reuben's like, hey, just hold on. And Simeon's like, no, kill him. Let's kill him now. Let's do it. Come on. It could have been him. Maybe. So maybe Joseph's like, I remember you. <laughs> Bind him. Right? That's, that's a rabid dog. You need, to, you need to get this guy in chains. M maybe. Could be that. Guess number two, though. Picking one brother to abandon to prison. 
is exactly what they did in chapter 37. They took Joseph, one of their brothers, and abandoned him to slavery in prison. And they had to, or they did that to Joseph, whom they all hated. So maybe Joseph picked the brother that he feels like everyone hates Simeon too. Like he's just a special kind of scumbag. So maybe they just, you know, they hate him. So let me see what they do or how concerned they are for a brother that they don't love. Let's see if they care to try to rescue him, try to save him. In any case, whether or not he's, he's doing it because, you know, Simeon, you're just a violent guy, you deserve this. You know, a little poetic justice, something like that. Or if it's because I wanna see if they're still gonna do that to a brother they don't, they don't love, just like they did to me, whom they didn't love. It, whether or not it's that parallel. In any case, Joseph picks Simeon. Text doesn't tell us why. That's the end of my personal thoughts. All right. Joseph sends the brothers off. And if you noticed in verse 25, he also had the money that they paid for all the food. He had that put back in their money bags. And that's secret, by the way. They don't know that that happened. He puts the money bags uh, back into their, their bags of food. And so they left with food. But the food now, in a way, it was free because they didn't pay for it. Okay, verse 26. Then the brothers loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, uh, my money has been put back here. Here it is at the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what? Is this that God has done to us? Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, Well, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin all this has come against me. Verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put Benjamin in my hands. I will bring him back to you. But dad said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. That's a mean thing to say, by the way. He has 12 sons, and he's like, well, Joseph's dead. This is the only one left. You have 10 guys going like, all right. Let's throw him in a pit. No, who knows? My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, he's, and he's the only one left. 
if harm should happen to him, if harm should happen to Benjamin on the journey that you were to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave, to Sheol, right? If harm happens to Benjamin while you guys are on this dangerous journey, you'll bring my gray hairs down. I'm going to die, right? His favoritism for Benjamin is, is unmistakable. Now, here the brothers are freaking out now because they look like thieves having run off with food from the most powerful empire in the world during a time of the greatest famine that's ever been experienced. When you rob an empire for the most valuable resource, you have to be afraid. What will this empire do to you? And it's hard for them to hide. They, They have like a huge household, hundreds of people in the land of Canaan. But what we do see is that the brothers at this point are not the same. They know their sin and they're represented by Reuben who kind of calls them out on their sin. He also swears to take Benjamin and he's like, I'll take Benjamin, I'll bring him back. I swear I'll bring him back. If, if, if I don't bring Benjamin back and you've lost Joseph and Benjamin, kill my two sons so that I will suffer the same fate. That, I, I bet my son's lives on this. Because now the, sons, now the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, are sacrificing to protect the brother, the favored brother. This is not the same story as with Joseph. They've confessed their hard, hard-heartedness in verse 21, and they've confessed to their blood guilt in verse 22, it is very different from before. They are not the same. Now, the story is far from over, but that's as far as we can go with this scene. And we have to hit the pause button. And so just to wrap up some thoughts, I do want to give you just a few observations, just three three thoughts on Joseph's rise to power when Joseph gets to his highest. First, Joseph's vindication tells us something about God's timing. God's timing is very different from our timing. You know, Joseph was in prison. He interpreted the dreams for the cupbearer and the baker. And then three days later, the cupbearer and the baker, they get exactly the destinies that, that Joseph told them would happen. And then Joseph's like, hey, when you, when you get restored to cupbearing, remember me and tell Pharaoh, put in a good word and get me out of this prison. Cupbearer forgets him. And two whole years pass. And here's the thing, like God didn't have in mind to just forget Joseph. God had in mind to release Joseph at the right time when the Pharaoh was desperate and troubled and anxious. That's when the cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. I remember this guy, Joseph. And then when Joseph gets brought in, now the Pharaoh is like, wow, incredible. Now you, want, you need to work for me. That could not have happened two years ago. If cupbearer was just restored to his position, he goes, that guy got me out. And Pharaoh's like, okay, he was your friend. Uh, yeah, I'll let him out too. That would have been the end of it. But God had this timing thing down that was so different. Joseph must have despaired. He had to, he had to be acquainted with depression. He had to be acquainted with questions of God. Why? 
What's going on? And yet still he remained faithful. And he had no idea that God had God's timing in mind for vindication and glory. He had no idea that God had a plan. And that's us, right? We go through suffering, and when we go through suffering, when we go through something difficult, we go, God, get me out of this. Hurry up, get me out. Instantly, right now, please, where are you? I've been praying about this for two days. Oh, God doesn't care. And we think that, you know, we prayed about it for, for a couple days, for a week, two weeks, a month. And we think, oh, forget it. What's the use? And yet God has his own timing in mind, a more opportune time. We are too interested in what God will do for me right now. That's what we're interested in. When we pray, we pray, God, do this for me right now. And yet God, if you watch the Bible, if you just see what happens, has always been interested in what God will do through you in his time. How God will work through you in his time. If only when we suffer, we would stay faithful, trusting in that. That doesn't mean that all suffering in this life will automatically be repaid in this life. Joseph is a physical object lesson, an illustration of the spiritual reality that God says, no matter what you go through now, you will be compensated later. In Luke 16, I think, he's talking about a beggar, and he's like, he had a hard life, and now, after his earthly life is over, now, his good things come to follow. The reward is in eternity. I want you to know the reward is in eternity. Do not think God somehow owes you money today or owes you money in this life. That is not it. That's the opposite of what God is trying to say. He's not trying to bait you with your greed for earthly treasure. He's saying, trust me, I am enough. I'll get you there. Even when this life comes to an end, I will deliver you. Second thought, Joseph's rise to power was never a license to exact vengeance on those who treated him unfairly. And he knew that. It was not his right to determine good and evil, good and bad, even with people who's good, who's bad. That's for God to determine, and his job is to do good. He was hurt, he was hurt bad by his brothers. And he had the power to destroy them or even to just rant and verbally punish them. He could still give them food and then just scream at them. He could gloat, he could be like, fools, I told you you'd bow, suckers. He could, but he doesn't. He just wants to know, like, have they changed? Have they grown? Are they men of faith? Maybe for you, someone in your life hurt you. And maybe a day will come where you can punish them. Or maybe you'll just find ways to aggressively or even passive aggressively try to punish them back. Will you? Or will you hope 
for their redemption? Will you hope that they will change? Will you pray that they'll grow out of this, that they will spiritually mature? Will you feed them or meet their needs even if they didn't change and if they're the same horrible people they used to be? When you're entrusted with power, do you think this is my power? Now I get to do what I want with it. I get to determine good and evil. I get to discern Tov and Ra. Or do you say that's the Lord's and I serve him. I just trust and I obey him. Everyone gets to choose their path, but God's will is always accomplished. So I at least get to choose whether or not I'm going to carry out his will or my own. I choose to do his. Third and final thought. If you see how Joseph's story is tying back to the themes back in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of Genesis, then you know God is starting all over with this people Israel, right? He's setting apart a people for himself who will live in trust and obedience to him specifically to the, the, the promised seed of Abraham, which that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, right? Will they trust in the solution that God is gonna provide? The savior that's gonna come, Jesus who will come and who will, uh, who will defeat God's enemies and who will then secure the land and own the land and govern the world and bless the nations. Will you trust him and obey him? Joseph is not just a picture of what Adam could have been. He's not just a picture of what it could have been and what it should have been for mankind. He is a picture of what will be for those who trust in Jesus. Do you remember when, when Jesus gives us a parable in Matthew 25? As he gives us parable, he kind of gives us lesson at the end in verse 21. He says, Matthew 25, verse 21, he says, well done, Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Right? Like Joseph, your faithfulness to God with, with the little things, with all the little things, means that God can entrust you with much. If you can't be trusted with a little, you can't be trusted with much. But for God to trust you with much, that's his joy for you. That's what he wants to see. This life can be full of hardship and suffering and pain. You can feel trapped. You can feel stuck in it. But for the faithful, for those that trust and obey in Jesus, prison ends with paradise. The trap, the struggle in the world that you live in, the curse of the world around you will come to an end and eternity is set before you. Now the good things are to come. Faithfulness today points to vindication and glory with Jesus for eternity. Jesus suffered and was vindicated and glorified. Joseph suffered, vindicated, glorified. For all those who place their faith in Jesus, there's vindication and glory with Jesus for eternity. Your slavery will end. You'll be royalty with the king. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray.
Father, we know the plan you have for your people. They will suffer for a while here on earth. The world will hate them just as they hated Jesus. Yet we pray that we would be faithful amidst our suffering. Faithful amidst hardship and tragedy. That those would not be the things that define us. Our future would not be motivated and directed and chiseled out by the hurt of the past. But that we will forget our affliction and know that the Lord has called us to something better. Something eternal. Something with the King. God, we pray that we would place our trust in you. Stay obedient to you. We are not saved by our obedience. We're saved because a Savior came and paid for our unworthiness, for our unfaithfulness. And having been paid for and having the, the penalty lifted off from us, we now come gladly rejoicing, offering ourselves willingly, not out of fear of punishment, but because we truly love and trust you. You are the only one who can discern good and evil, tov and ra. And we pray that we would live in that, stay obedient to that, not determining for ourselves or not letting the world or society or culture determine that for us, but coming back to you. Because no matter how the world goes and no matter how people choose their way, your sovereign will will be accomplished. May we trust in Jesus, our Savior, and may we stay obedient to you. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.